Is Courtney to win? Hi, Courtney. Opa. Opa, Gangnam style, Courtney. That's like a. How are you, Ben? I'm good. You? Yeah, I'm doing awesome. Yes, we um not... we are in the age of Gangnam style, I guess. I mean, it's been on. I first heard it during the Olympics, so a while ago. But this was a big week for it in a lot of ways. It was. It was. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a late convert. I think you. Yeah, you caught it the Olympics. I think I caught it maybe like a month after that. Okay. Maybe a month and a half. And I think I posted it on my personal Facebook page where I was like, life is basic. My life is basically divided into two phases, like pre Gangnam style and post Gangnam style. Mm -hmm. Like that video absolutely blew my mind um, and was incredible. So, yes, but um, it is now taken over tennis, which probably means that it's jumped to the shark and over much like planking. Oh, Back in the day, but hey, you know, you milk as much as you can out of an internet meme, and then you let it go, and that's okay. That's good. I mean, if if you know, Mitt Romney starts Gangnam styling during the second debate or something, oh. We, oh. we will know that we've gone too far. We will have gone way too far. But for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, Novak Djokovic has Gangnam styled a few times on court um, after at an exhibition match in Taiwan and in Beijing, and much more elaborately. Laura Robson and her pal Jeannie Bouchard, who won the Wimbledon girls title this summer, and they're both 18, did a big video of it across China, I guess, in both Beijing and Osaka. Is that right? Yeah, I think that they finished the editing and got some additional footage in Osaka. But um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, what was the most surprising thing to you, Ben, when you saw the video? I was just really impressed by their casting. I don't know if it's surprising yeah. or not, but when they, when they when the line "Hey, sexy ladies" comes on, <laughs> and they and they decide to have Fernando Verdasco like point into the camera and say that, that's just that's great. That's that's perfect casting, and you know, ballsy casting to be able to go approach Fernando Verdasco and say, "Hey, you seem like the perfect you know Casanova to deliver this line to our our people. Please do," and have him do it so eagerly. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly right, is kind of for both of these two 18-year-olds to to have the gall to, uh, you know, walk up to Maria Sharapova and be like, hey, can you do this? Like, can you just read this for us or like whatever? And I think that most players would never do that. Yeah. They would never come close to Maria. Because Maria, both- Maria is the one who's not known for giving a lot of high fives in the locker room, so to speak. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, you know, obviously Laura has practiced with Maria before numerous times. Um, Maria's not at all threatened by Laura (laughs) because she owns her on the court. So it's kind of a perfect scenario uh, to get that done. But um, apparently a bunch of the the players were were pretty shocked that the two kids were able to get Maria's involvement. And uh, they were like, you know, how did you how did you do that? How did you get her? And uh, I think Laura Robson's response was, I asked. Yeah. (laughs) Which is pretty much, I don't know, I feel like that sums up all of that. I feel like like Laura, I mean, sorry, I feel like Maria in the locker room can kind of be like that old man in Home Alone 1, you know, who shovels. (laughs) And people assume he's like really mean, but just nobody talks to him, you know? And if you just just talked to him, maybe you'd see there was something sweet and sugar pova on the inside. 
Well, you know, I mean, maybe she really is flirty and splashy and quirky and spooky. You know, all this like, spooky. Uh, maybe she wouldn't need candy to tell the world tell the world this. Like if she, <laughs> she has know. to express but... her feelings through candy. It's come to that. <laughs> hey, you know, everyone like she like she says she's quirky. Yeah. But yeah, you. I mean, people are as intimidating as you let them be. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, that's the reality of it. I'm sure you've experienced this as well, Ben. And I know I have, you know, getting involved in tennis and, you know, kind of interviewing a lot of players and and people that are part of tennis that, you know, as tennis fans, before we got into this gig, like, you kind of put on a pedestal. Sure. And then you just really quickly realize that that's really stupid. Like, it just doesn't allow you to do your job. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. They're just normal people. And once you kind of, you know, it's like, oh, okay, it's Roger Federer, no big deal. Like, ask him your question. Like, what's the worst that could happen, you know, sort of thing? Like, It's just that guy sitting over there at this point. Exactly. Yeah. Roger Federer is now sitting in Shanghai. Segway. Under heavy, on very heavy security, actually. Probably has, you know, someone with a machine gun sitting outside his hotel room door or something. Uh, you wrote about this a little bit, Courtney. Uh, can you, actually, more than a little bit, can you talk about what Roger Federer, the build-up to his being in Shanghai and all that stuff is? Cause I think that sort of confused or caught a lot of people off guard, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, you know, Roger had, hadn't confirmed uh, to play Shanghai until the very last minute. Um, and as it turns out, in a somewhat related but you know, not <clears throat> directly related uh, turn of events. There was an online death threat made directed towards him by a user on some popular Chinese website, threatening to decapitate him on a certain day with like a really graphic, you know, uh, some sort of like Microsoft Paint <laughs> picture of, of you know him headless next to an executioner sort of thing. I, I will say, aside from obviously not the content of that, but I do appreciate some good Microsoft Paint work when it comes to that. When people put that much energy into something so lo-fi. <laughs> it is lo-fi. If you're going to threaten someone, you might as well do it on MS Paint. No no, 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 uh, no disputing that. No. But, uh, but yeah, so th- this death threat uh, was made public, um, much to Roger's chagrin. He actually didn't want it to be really well uh, publicized. Um, I think that... My sense is that he really didn't think it was that big of a deal that, you know, you take extra precaution and like whatever. But um, but anyways, he made the decision to come to Shanghai. Merka and the kids stayed home. Um, he says that wasn't related to the death threat, but more just because his decision came so late that organizing a family trip to China was going to be a bit of a hassle. Right. So so he showed up in Shanghai by himself and he's just under massive security. I mean, he it's like him walking the grounds with like 30 like men in black. Yeah, it's. It's nuts. There's a report that's subsequently come come out that isn't really confirmed, but it, it was a report that the guy who made the threat has since apologized, that he, he contacted the tournament and uh, said that it was basically like a fan debate gone nuclear. Right. Like he's said some things like i don't know if you guys read like tennis forum this crap comes up all the time like you know like yeah. where people maybe like, maybe just, not decapitation but you know people maybe people not start flaming each other and right happen. just like and this was just flaming on a really graphic and morbid level and and you know that that was a problem but 
yeah, just kind of a weird buildup, a weird, you know, kind of tenor to the tournament as well, I think, with Shanghai. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the the Australian Open announces its huge pay increase, and now they're all involved in these closed-door meetings in Shanghai to figure out how it will be distributed. And, and then, meanwhile, there's the tennis. Number one is up for grabs. Novak could grab it if, if Roger loses before the quarterfinals. Um, there's just a lot going on with Shanghai. But it feels... It doesn't feel like it's been a seamless transition into that tournament. No, to not me. at all. Although there, there were two 500. I do like the way the sort of the Asia swing on the ATP is built. I mean, there's the two 250s in Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur. Then it goes to 500s in Tokyo and Beijing. And then there's the 1,000 Masters event in Shanghai. So it does sort of crescendo up nicely and lets people, you know, choose that level of commitment to it, like... Uh, Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray both played 500s. Djokovic played and won in Beijing, and Murray played and lost in the quarters or semis of uh, semis. semis to Ronic in Tokyo. And then Ronic lost in the final to Kei Shikori, who became Special K. Special K, who became the first Japanese guy to win that tournament, I think. That's correct, since it became an ATP tournament 41 years ago. Long time. Long time, long time. And really, I mean, I was going through looking at, you know, the ATP champions this year. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it's hard to say that it, setting aside the Olympics and the slams, just looking at ATP tournaments, that there was kind of a more really impressive and historic run by anyone this year, like more than what Kay did last last week. Um, just the way that he played, who he beat, doing it at home, yeah. you know, making history, all those sorts of things. It was it was impressive what he was able to do. Um, I mean, my jaw was on the ground in the match that he played against Burdick and he beat, beat him in straight sets. And it really was Davidenko-esque. And I mean that as a positive. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like it's just it's it's video game stuff, what Kay can do when he's moving well. And uh, it was great. It was really, really fun to watch. And he, um, he's had sort of a, he had a great Australia. He made the quarters there, but he kind of been down since then. Some injury problems, and some I think just, uh, you know, suddenly being. That's what happens on the tour. I mean, you become sort of a more known quantity. You get a target on your back, and you're going to start losing some. And uh, it's more complicated than that, but that's the way to sort of simplify it. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, it sort of reacted to that, but now he wins this big title. He had previously won one at least one ATP title in uh, Delray Beach a few years ago. Over four years ago. Yeah, that was. This was he his first win since then. Yeah, this was his first win since then, and uh, this was the youngest ATP final of the year. Yeah. Featuring the two youngest guys in the top twenty. So that's good. That's good for tennis, right there. Yeah, it's ATP great. ATP needs I mean, that. It, ATP needs the the new balls, as I used to say. Exactly. And and it was an entertaining final, too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just, oh, like on paper, it wasn't just like, oh, these are the two youngest guys. Oh, this is, you know, a battle for the, that we'll see in the next generation. You know, like a lot of those like matches have been duds. Like, I think the one that comes to mind is, I think, Harrison Tomic. In Cincinnati this year? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty rough. Which was just a brutal match. And wasn't particularly fun to watch and you know those types of matches aren't great when you're trying to say like this is the future of of, you know of tennis but uh, the Nishikori Raonic final was really great well that's good I mean and Raonic obviously can't be unhappy with his tournament either he did beat Andy Murray for a second time this year 
um, beating the U.S. Open champion, Murray's first loss since uh, the U.S. Open, and beating him on the hard courts, and doing it with uh, surviving a few bumps in the road. So I think that's a big win for him, arguably the biggest win of his career. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, Murray didn't break him yeah. in that match, uh, if I recall. I think he broke him and... in the third set, actually. I think it got back yeah, on serve Yeah, you're right. There. He was trying, and then he broke back to get back on serve. You're right. Yeah, but, uh, you know, solid stuff and then, from Roundage. I mean, I still like watching him play. There's still a lot of work to be done, but, you know, still weird he couldn't win the mat, the final, but yeah. what can you do? Oh, well. Um, these things happen. Uh, <laughs> across the, uh, the water in Beijing, there was a much more smooth tournament for Novak Djokovic, I think. I don't think he was really challenged. And you got to see... Sanga make a um, his first ATP final in the post. No, no, he did. Did he win? Uh, did Sanga win that French tournament? Met? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Okay, forget that. Uh, Sanga won, made the final. Djokovic wins. Business as usual, I guess. Um, there was a Chinese guy who made the third round, actually, or maybe even the yep. yeah, third round who beat uh, Richard Gasquet, uh, Zhang Zhe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was good for them. It was a good week for Asian men in Asia. Who, it was, I mean, arguably it was a good week for all the Asian players, if you include Li Na. Yeah. I mean, obviously her loss was weird to Sharapova, but it was the still the, the week that she needed to have in front of the Beijing crowd. Yeah, and I actually talked to Nisha Corey about this a while ago, about why he thinks that historically uh, Asian women have done a lot better than the men. Um, you know, years back, I mean, you had Kimiko Date, Aisukiyama, Li Na, all doing much bigger things and all being top 10 doing much bigger things than Nisha Corey or I don't know, Sharisha fan or whoever else you want to name has. And, uh, he said it basically comes down to just, they're not being sort of competition to be able to train against in Asia. You know, there's no, to be a great ATP or you have to sort of play people who are at that level a lot or practice with them. And the women can practice with men who can sort of mimic a top WTA level much more easily than the men can find men on the continent. So, yeah, and it, I mean, yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at, you know, players like uh, Raonich, like Nisha Corey, mm-hmm. like Andy Murray, these are guys who come from countries that don't necessarily have a strong, I mean, obviously Britain has a strong tennis tradition, but they don't have the quality right, right now. And they all kind of left home yeah. to to really do that to you know for Kanish Corey it was coming to Balotelli's for Murray it was going to 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 Barcelona to Spain for uh Raonich to team up with uh, Gallo Blanco and, and to train in Europe and and really get that sort of level of of expectation yeah and competition is is really you know has really set them apart and it really does make you wonder you know those players who who kind of keep it all in house and and stay home Donald Young would come to mind when you say that. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Donald Young, Sam Querrey a little bit, um, even Orion Harrison. You know, like, you kind of wonder, you know, what would have happened if y'all just, like, you know, did go to Spain and train or um, something? And and uh, so, I don't know. It, it's something that I, I think about occasionally. But, but yeah, I think that, that Kay's comments are, are really interesting on that point. Uh, you mentioned Lina, who lost in the semi to Sharapova, flipping over to the women. Uh, Sharapova mm-hmm. then... Eyes and buddies. Yeah, eyes and buds. They went... Sharapova won that 6-4, 6 love. And they went to the final and once again lost to Victoria Azarenka. 
in a hard court final this year for the third time. Six, well, six straight hard court loss. Yeah. For Sharapova to Azarenka. It really is how weird how the stats have completely made Maria look like a clay court specialist lately. Seriously. They really do. I, ha- I mean, yeah. I was right. I wrote up a whole uh, piece for SI about basically Sharapova's inability to kind of bring it against Azarenka and, and Serena when the sport really kind of needs her to. Yeah. You now she is like the most marketable women's athlete on earth and she's the number two ranked player in the world and she looks like a number 50 when she plays the number one and she looks like a number 50 when she plays Serena. Like yeah. it does, it's not even close. And, you know, it's just funny that the closest that she gets to either of them is on clay. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it's like, really? Clay Pova is a real thing. Clay Pova is a real thing. Uh, maybe that'll be her next Sugar Pova flavor. It should be. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, like dirt ball. Like dirt, yeah, dirt. Like those gummy, those gummy balls that she has, and just cover them in some sort of red sugar. Or just like you know, powdered chocolate or something could be good. <laughs> It'd be funny if it was just literally like powdered like red chocolate. That'd be good. You know what she do? Like a fun dip style. Ooh. Get a racket that's like the fun dip stick. That could be good. Dip it in there. You're welcome, Maria. Get some cross-promotion with uh, Head, a racket company. Exactly. You listen, listen in, Max? You're welcome. We we, we really shouldn't give these ideas away. We should charge a lot. We really shouldn't. Oh, God. We just give it all away. We got a question from – we ask for questions, as we do most times when we record. We got a question concerning this. I have lots of – this is from T. Claire L., um, who says, I have lots of questions concerning Maria after the Beijing final. What do you think is next for her in matchups against Vika? What do you think? It's just hard. I mean, I think that the problem for Maria uh, when she plays Vika is that she just cannot hold her serve. Yeah. And and that is really her problem, obviously, against Serena as well. Although with Serena, you have to kind of set that matchup aside because I think we just have to stop and say, at their best, Serena's just a better tennis player than Maria. And I think that we're at least for me i'm much less reluctant i'm much more reluctant to say that when it comes to maria versus vika yeah and so but the problem is is that maria just cannot she has to serve lights out against vika on hard court to give herself a chance yeah that and, third set of that us open semi those she had some marathon serve games she was getting out of exactly yeah you know and and so that's really i think when you boil it down that's where that would release the pressure. What I wrote about her for SI is that when she plays Vika, it's like an MMA match where Vika's like a, a grappling specialist and Sharapova's like a knockout artist and Vika just suffocates her. Like she just gets up, she hugs the baseline, she doesn't give Maria any time or room or space and puts so much pressure on Maria to nail the lines deep and to hit through her because anything that Maria leaves short and doesn't really go all out on Vika just pounces on yeah. and takes control of the rally. And it happens so quick between them. It's to the point so, where I almost think that other players, coaches should pull up. If they're going to play Sharapova, should pull up an Azarenka Sharapova match. Cause like, it's just textbook how you defeat her. Precisely. Right. And, and it, it, you know, the players who do well against Maria are ones who obviously return serve well, who can hug the baseline. I think that that's a really important thing. Hug the baseline and absorb power and redirect it deep. That's what Vika can do. And then on top of all that, what Azarenka can do that maybe a Wozniacki could never do is actually hit a winner. Yeah. 
if Maria kind of blinks under pressure and just puts kind of a rally ball back in, other players don't have the cojones to step up and take control of the rally on that single ball. But Vika has no problem doing it. And it's like the decision making is so clear when she plays Maria. So she has. So, I mean, I think the focus really is still on the serve. You know, getting that serve to where it becomes a more reliable weapon like it was, you know, pre-shoulder surgery. If she's able to do that, then then she'll turn that that matchup around. Um, but if, if Azarenka continues to play at this level and, and doesn't really see, we don't see a noticeable dip, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to see how, how this matchup really, you know, flips back in Maria's favor on hard court. Yeah, Azarenka really does seem to have gotten back to her beginning of the year form and I was really surprised yeah. to hear um just because I she'd been playing so well lately this was this is her first title since Indian Wells because I mean she did win a bronze medal in singles and gold and mixed at the Olympics and she made the U.S. Open final and just hasn't lost a lot I want she got off clay yeah because like in the beginning of the first third of the year Serena was absent yeah you know, for all the talk about, oh, Serena's the best player in the world, she should be ranked number one. No, she shouldn't, because she wasn't really part of the tour for the first three months of the year. And that's when Azarenka ran, you know, ramshot through it. And that's when Serena's probably going to make her move in 2013. Exactly. That's where she'll she'll, she'll get back to number one by Miami, um, I think, for sure. But, um, but yeah, then Maria kind of owned Clay. Weird. Um, and then ever since then, it's been it's been Serena, you know, beating uh, Vika at Wimbledon. She beat her at the Olympics. She beat her at the U.S. Open. So, you know, that's kind of why like Vika hasn't really picked up the, the major titles. But it was a good win for her in Beijing. Yeah, didn't drop a set. No, it was it was very solid. And uh, she goes into every tournament she plays as a favorite. Uh, Istanbul. We'll talk more about later. But I think. She, if Serena is not there, which is possible, we we just never know with Serena, um, in terms of the sort of right. It's pure speculation. It's not based on you know it. off main swing of calendar year attendance. You don't know. Yep. So, but right now we're still in China. We have the men in Shanghai. We got another question from Mind the Racket, aka Brody, who asks us thoughts on tennis's popularity in China. Has it really gotten that much bigger? Worth dragging the big names over there every year? What do you think? Worth dragging the big names, Courtney? Definitely worth dragging the big names so long as the tournaments can pony up the cash. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I would much rather have tennis, you know, in China trying to break through there in front of empty crowds, oddly, than than seeing the same thing in Doha and and um, Dubai. And, and, I mean, the money is there, so, you know, why not go get it? And with China, there really is kind of this untapped market not just in terms of sponsors and deals and and all that sort of thing but also of just players yeah. of, of future asian players to really balance out this tour um and and truly make it global and international once you get the asian players really involved so i think i feel like because of that upside which i see a little bit less of in the middle east yeah. i'm much more inclined to 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 send the to force the players in, to go play in china like every single freaking year yeah there really isn't any evidence that the middle east has produced any players as a result of these tournaments or no. especially on the women's side um, right well so, yeah i mean there's uh, <laughs> if you don't let them play they're not going to be professional play. tennis players All right so if the big battle is getting them into you know a skirt tennis yeah. might be a big next step but yeah I, I i would agree and i think that i watched didn't watch that much tennis from beijing 
And I watched a fair amount, but one of the matches that stuck with me most was a third round match between Li Na and Peng Shui, which went to a third set tiebreak. And the atmosphere there was just great. I mean, you really did see that at all of Li Na's matches, that she is a big, big star over there. And she lost first round last year, so this was a good good week for her to make the semis there. And it would have been a big story if she could have won the title there, I think. It would have just been big if she could beat Sharapova. Yeah. I think that her, if she were to lose Savika in the final, okay, so what? But, you know, just kind of from a marketing and an optics perspective, like Lee Na beat Maria Sharapova. That, you know, that resonates yeah. uh, to people more so than Lee Na beat Victoria Azarenka and won the China Open, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that was a brutal loss for her. I mean, she was she was the better player in that first set against Sharapova. She raced out to, I think, a three-love lead, eventually loses the set 6-4. Um, a lot of long, brutal, you know, games to, to hold and, and, and fail to break. Um, so that was, you know, it, it sucks that it had to end that way, but um, but good week for her. Even, I think, the WTA just posted this video of Zhang, a day in the life of Zhang Zhe, mm-hmm. um, Jay-Z, for us in the Western world. Yep. And uh, and they were showing her autograph session, and the queue like went on forever, like you know. And I was like, and that's for Zheng Zhe, you know. So um, who's awesome? But you know, she's not Li Na. So I was. It made me think and wonder, you know, with kind of the other WTA players when they go back to China, especially now within the last couple of years, whether or not it kind of blows them away. Like, oh no, you're a really big deal. Yeah. Like you know, like to lean on to Zhang Jae and Peng Shui and, and all them. Because everybody is a little bit, I mean, I don't think we, I don't know. Dominica Chabulkova goes to Slovakia. There's going to be posts up, you know, billboards of her somewhere in the country, presumably. Everybody has a little something at home that we don't always see, right. I think. But uh, Li Na, it's completely different. I mean, basically, yeah. like, Eastern Hemisphere is hers. Even in Australia, she, like, dominates there in terms of being visible. There was a sign at the Melbourne airport that said, Welcome to Melbourne. It had a picture of Lena. Yep. Who's Chinese and not Australian, which I thought was funny. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I appreciated the welcome. And she had made the, fi- the finals of the Australian Open there. So. Yeah. And they have a lot of, they have a lot of Asian tour- uh, Chinese tourists in Melbourne, I guess. And charmed the crowd. Yes. Which the Aussies really, really appreciate. They so. do. As do we, I think we all do to a degree. Oh, for sure. But I mean, like for at Wimbledon, it's really hard to charm a crowd when you don't do post match interviews. Encore, and- yeah. You know, like, and it's like the BBC interviews that can be a bit stiff and, um, yeah, it, it's not as easy and same with the French. So, uh, yeah, the Aussie and the U.S. kind of give you that opportunity. But I think more so the Aussie because they always had Courier do it, which I actually really liked because he was kind of smooth and um, was able to kind of banter with the players. And he was a good and, sort of um, butt of jokes. too. Yeah, exactly. Before Lina goes back to Australia, though, she will be going to Istanbul because she is one of the eight players confirmed there in the field. Uh, she got in by making the semis of Istanbul, I believe. Or, of, of sorry, of Beijing. Correct. And so that wrapped up the field. So now we have our eight players who are in. And we have our two alternates. So the eight players are Victoria Azarenka, Maria Sharapova, Serena Williams, Agnieszka Radvanska, Angelique Kerber, Sarah Arani, I say that at my best Wickmeyer, Pam Shriver voice. <laughs> and Lena, what do you, what do you, we're both going to Istanbul, which starts a week from Tuesday when we record Woo-hoo! this. What do you expect from the Teb 
you know, BMP Paribas WTA championship. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot, quite a few of the players are tired. I think that, that Kerber, who knows what to expect from her, um, you know, does, I mean, doesn't it really just, don't all the major WTA tournaments these days within the last like six months really just turn on a is Serena playing it? Yeah. And kind of the fl- it's a very abbreviated flow chart. Yeah. <laughs> like is Serena playing? Yes. Then Serena, it's all about Serena. Yeah. Is Serena playing? No. Is Vika playing? Yes. Okay. Well then there you go. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard. So, you know, the, the biggest question is whether Serena is going to be there. Um, if she is, you know, she's my overwhelming favorite uh, for sure. I think that because I like watching her game, because I do want her to kind of redeem her year, I'm curious as to what Kvitova has. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously she she's it has an impeccable indoor record. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I think when I was naming those names, I said Stoser instead of Kvitova. Kvitova's in. Stoser's an alternate. Sorry. Right. My bad. No worries. Um, yeah, so so I'd be really curious to see see what Petra does. But you know, if if Serena and Vika and Maria are all there, I just don't really see anybody winning that title outside of Petra, um, other than them. So yeah. Yeah. sounds about right. We'll see. It'll be interesting. Uh, Petra has had a medium year, I think. Definitely not like a huge drop year. But she also didn't keep rising like some thought she might after she really kind of stormed her way to Istanbul last fall. So I think it's, you know, definitely a passing grade for this year. And there were signs of improvement. Just, you know, slight sophomore slump to some degree, maybe. Right. I mean, if you grade, if, if it's a straight, if it's a straight grade, like she had like a B plus year. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you don't make, what was it, two semifinals? No. At slams? Yeah, yeah one she, made, she made semis in Australia and Roland Garros. Quart- ah, quarters right. at Wimbledon, fourth round yeah. at U.S. Open. Right, you know, and uh, and she played, you know, and if we're gauging things by how people play on the biggest stages, she still played really well, um, you know, at those tournaments. And but when you when you grade on a curve, which is usually how grades are issued in sport, yep. you compare to kind of expectations and potential and and based off what she did last year was it fair to uh, think she could do the same thing this year win a slam six titles she was very near number one at the beginning of the year very near um i would say it's probably not fair to think that she could replicate that much like it wouldn't have been fair to think that that djokovic could replicate his 2011 but especially because petra hadn't really had a history that made you think that 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 2011 was coming yeah like it, maybe 2011 was going to come in 2014, but it, the fact that it happened in 2011 was kind of a shock. Yeah. So a bit of a drop off is understandable, but but yeah, I mean it was a, it was a frustrating year for her. And she's she is better than the player that she was, I think, or at least the results. Yeah. And she did have, um, I mean, her yeah. U.S. Open swing, U.S. Open series swing was mm-hmm. huge. I mean, that really showed what she can be, and especially what on what used to be her in what used to be her worst part of the schedule. So. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons to be interested, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of statement she ends the year on. Yeah. And what she takes into Australia. She's definitely a name to watch. But yeah, once again, and, it is all down to Serena, I think. Yeah. But it should be said about Petra, because I'm not sure that this story really has been... Not story, but I just don't think... I don't know if people realize like how injured and ill she's been throughout the year. Mm. Um, just, just really bad luck. 
like just like when she, she you know kind of getting stomach viruses and you know kind of your typical traveling woes yeah. uh getting you know picked up here and there that that have contributed to losses and uh you know niggles here and there but um you know if she can really get herself well and commit over the off season you know there's there's never a reason to think that Petra's never a contender. Right. She's always a contender. Absolutely. So we'll, it'll be interesting yeah. to see how the groups shake out there. Um, yep. And yeah, so that's going to be our next event. So we're pretty excited for that. Well, Ben, do you want to see Serena in Vika's group or Maria's group? I want to see I want to see Serena and Vika play each other. Okay. Obviously, I think that's the one match everybody wants to see in the WTA Tour right now. Yeah. Just because of how great that US Open final was. I'd be happy to have them play each other twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that can happen in this round robin event, the way it works. Um, I just want them to play each other. I don't really care when. They're the same group that would guarantee it. So let's let's say that. What about you? Fair. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. I uh, I would probably want them both in the same group. I I would rather see them for sure than not at all. Yeah. So if they're in opposite groups, there's always a chance that they wouldn't. They'd have to meet in the semis or the finals, and who knows. If that would happen, but if you put them in the same group, then we get at least one of them, and that makes the that makes the flight to Istanbul worth it for me. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of long flights, the tournament that is furthest from my current location in Washington D.C. is the one that is held in Perth every year, <laughs> uh, which is the Hopman Cup, and it is moving to a new arena, slightly in I guess uh, it's probably moving about two miles closer to me. So it's a little different. Is it back towards the city center? Yeah, it's downtown now. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's going to be the new Perth Arena, which has a retractable roof to simulate the Rod Laver Arena conditions, which means it will mostly be open and very hot. Yeah, but but Ben, I mean, so I went to the I went to Hotman Cup two years ago. Ben went last year. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how it was weather wise when you were in Perth in January, but when I was there, like being under the Burswood Dome, which is basically people. It's almost kind of like a built-up tennis stadium. It's like a tennis bubble. Under, yeah, it's a bubble. Yeah. It was so, like, I had to leave the, the stands every once in a while to go outside where it was hotter to just get air because it got so stuffy yeah. under under the, 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 the dome. It was brutal. It definitely did. So hopefully this will be a better climate. And they yeah. just announced the last of their teams for this year. And we are both Hotman Cup. Uh, enthusiasts, I think it's fair to say. Very fair to say, Ben. So, so the uh, so the three teams that we knew about before were uh, the top seed team of Novak Djokovic and Anna Ivanovic for Serbia. They've been there before um, together. And then the next one is the very very tall, lanky team of Venus Williams and John Isner for the U.S. Then you have the different sized team of the Italians, Francesca Schiavoni and Andrea Seppi, their new announcement. And then Spanish team returning of Annabelle Medina-Garriguez and uh, Fernando Verdasco. Then you have the lower teams, although the, one of them was really good, the German team, Andre Pekovic and Tommy Haas, which I think if I would, had to pick a German team to go that I'd want to see most, I think I would pick them. Uh, they have the South Africans, Kevin Anderson and Chanel Skiappers. The French team of Joe Willy Songa and Matilda Johansson, and then the Australian hosts, gracious as ever, Casey Delacqua and Bernard Tomic. So what do you make of the field for Hopman 2013? I mean, I think it's a really solid field, considering that they're competing for players against tournaments like Brisbane, 
uh, Auckland, Chennai, I think Doha's that week as well, maybe. Yes. Or yeah. Qatar, whatever. So given that, you know, and and Brisbane has announced a very strong lineup. Yeah, Brisbane uh, had already taken Serena, Sharapova, Murray. Right. Murray and actually was a crucial one because Murray and Robson might have been able to go again. Exactly. I mean, once Brisbane announced Murray, then it was pretty clear that there wouldn't be a British delegation uh, in Perth for the first time in, what, three years? No, there wasn't one last year. They didn't play last year? No, they didn't play last year. Oh. Um, but they uh, there is also no, because there's no other British men in the top 200. No. <laughs> I mean, that's just what it comes down to. So. It, it, it's not going to be... Andy J- or nothing. Yeah, it was, it was not going to be James Ward and Laura Robson. No. Um, and, sh- I mean, to be fair as well, I mean, she she needs to start playing lead-up events, you know, now that she's making – she doesn't have to play qualities yeah. uh, at the Aussie Open. So time to get that ranking up. But, um, yeah, so, no, I thought it was a really – I think Sangha was a huge was a huge get. That's a big get. For yeah. them. Although really I, big get I don't them. like that they paired him with Matilda Johansson. Why is that, Ben? Because they just let, have done let much loose. better. I mean, I don't think that she, and I, all due respect to her and her game, I think she made the third round of the French Open this year, beating no one in particular. But I think that she doesn't bring a whole lot to the table in terms of entertainment value or just being an interesting player. I mean, Hopman has gone a few different routes with this in the past. When Laura Robinson first played, for example, she was sort of a young, promising junior, you know, like a future glimpse of the future kind of thing. And Hopman could have done that with, like, Caroline Garcia, for example, or even uh, Christina Mladenovic who's been there before, even though she's not that young anymore. And then they also could have had Marion Bartoli, who was there last year. Although Marion Bartoli, being as intense as she is last year, double-bageled Gaitasova, <laughs> the host, <laughs> when they played each other. And it was really I uncomfortable. I completely forgot about that result. It was just like, some people, because there's talk about Hotman, like some people think it's an exhibition, and there are, maybe you do see one or two players who are there who do kind of not take it as seriously. Marion Bertoli is not that player. Marion Bertoli was out for blood, and the Australian crowd was just so uncomfortable, and Gattisova started tearing up near the end, and it really kind of, it really kind of turned her whole year upside down completely. Yeah, so... I think maybe that's why Mary did not get asked bad. I don't know. Because she's yeah, still a top tenner was... and should have and I think she would have liked playing with Sangha. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like just the visual in my head is just like, you know, like somebody inviting Marion over to like a lovely garden party yeah. and they're just like tearing it up. Like eating all your food, knocking over your table, grabbing the drink out of your hand and drinking it and then throwing it in your face. Just pumping after every single move, too. Exactly. Yeah, that's not going to get you an invite back. No. So, yeah, so that's the that's the thing. And uh, so it should be interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm super bummed that the Bulgarians aren't returning. And they were fun. I just think Parankova and Dimitrov are just a solid EXO team, smaller country, you know... But uh, but obviously, I mean, we don't know. I mean, especially with Dimitrov, it's it's entirely possible that, you know, he'd rather go play for ranking points yeah. than than hang out in in Perth, which is a a lovely town. Yeah, no, it uh, is. But not much to do there. No, not a whole lot. But uh, they were a good team, and there's just a mm-hmm. lot of different routes you could go. I mean, I was sort of going through this once the list came out, and this is sort of a you know early Christmas for me, the Hotman list. I'm something of a, a nerd when it comes to mixed doubles. There's a lot of countries you could do that would be interesting. I mean, even like Luxembourg or something, if you wanted some really tiny country. They have two serviceable players in Gilles Muller and uh, Mandy Manella. 
Although I do think they kind of leave it open so you c- they can have alternates if absolutely necessary. Oh, that's for sure. Gets hurt. So maybe that would be a little too small for them. But I think there are Luxembourgians hanging around somewhere a flight away yes. if need be. Yes. So. Um, what do you think of the South African team? I, think that's I, fa- I thought that was an interesting one. Kind of surprising. It is surprising um, because neither of them, and it, I actually talked to Bartoli about this a little bit last year at Hotman Cup. Because both of those players, Skippers and Anderson, have had problems with their federation, and neither were able to represent South Africa at the Olympics. And so you wouldn't think they would be the ones quick to pick to represent them and Hopman together. But uh, they were, and Hopman has sort of an interesting relation with the federations. Like, every federation who's there sends a delegation. Like, the Bulgarian Tennis Federation was there last year, and very visible, and the Danish, and I think the USA probably had someone there. Um, just and it is an ITF sanctioned event, but also um, obviously there's not the oversight of that there is for Davis or Fed Cup, and so the FFT, the French Federation of Tennis, uh, Twitter was tweeting a lot about Bartoli's play and results during her matches, like supporting her own, like go Marion, go Marion, FFT loves you, mm-hmm. and I told her about that, and she thought that was kind of you know a mixed message because they were in the middle of their disputes with her. Did Marion roll her eyes? I don't. I don't remember what she did. To give a concerned mm. look. Mm. But pensive. Pensive. She. She is a thinker. She's a thinker. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. The Australian guy who was there last year was Leighton Hewitt. This year he will not be there. It'll be Bernard Tomic, or as some people in Australia now call him. Courtney. Tomic the Tank Engine. How great is that nickname? It's such a, I mean, it's an unfortunate nickname in, if you're an athlete. Yes. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a solid one. Now, what, now, can you explain for people who might not know what Bernie has done to inspire this derision? Uh, sure. Uh, so Bernie Tomic, uh, can't seem to have an article written about him these days without the, the word tank somewhere embedded in there and, and uh, just, you know, a lot of, a lot of people kind of, well, I mean, he's effectively, I mean, he's been under the microscope for all year, really. I mean, it's been a, it's been a pressure packed year for, for Tommy. His whole career, really. Yeah, his whole career. And, um, and he has never been one that really truly fits into the Aussie athlete mold, but, uh, but it started at the U S open kind of most blatantly when, when his, uh, desultory performance against Andy Roddick, wherein he lost six love in the third set and was publicly criticized by the brothers McEnroe for for tanking the match. You know, that's Patrick Rafter called the performance disgraceful. Tomic got into like a weird. Yeah, that was like, weird. I was I was at that press conference. Yeah, you can you can give some insight then. Tomic Tomic has a sort of just detached nature when he's on the podium for press, where it's never really clear sort of if he understands what is being asked, especially for someone who is, you know, completely fluent in English. English first language, almost, I think, if pretty close, anyway. And uh, obviously he's from an English-speaking country. Also doesn't seem entirely engaged with his answers, too. So someone had asked him um, that John McEnroe had said during the match that he thought he wasn't trying, that he was tanking. You know, what do you think of that comment? Obviously, it's a pretty strong statement for McEnroe to make. And Tomich said something like, yeah, you know, I think he's probably right. You know, there are things I could, you know, yeah. And then so somebody followed up 
someone who's which na- was very kind. This was to this was this was a very kind follow up, trying to let Tomic explain that answer. Exactly. And that person's name is Will Swan, who works for Reuters, which is mm-hmm. later. Will asked Bernard, you know, if he could just elaborate on that, that not trying or something. And Tomic got because it was you know really bold statement. Just please, you know, explain yourself a little more. And Tomic got very suddenly very angry, wearing a sleeveless tank top. And he said, oh, you know, who are you or whatever? What's your name? He said, Will. And he said, what's your last name? Swanton. And who do you work for? Reuters. And Tomic sort of looked at him and said, I'll remember you. <laughs> and it was the most, like, non-menacing. That's the thing. Is, like, it wasn't. I couldn't tell if, like, Tomic was angry. It, it just was, like, it was. Like, you couldn't help but laugh it was at him. Like, what did you think you were doing, dude? Like, but yeah, I mean, like, I was, like, just getting back to it. I mean, the follow-up was, like, to me, like, a very gracious follow-up. Because I think somebody was asking on the Twitter when we were asking for questions, like, what were your guys, what did you guys do before you were working for tennis? And this is somewhat related. But I was an attorney before I, before I became a tennis traveler, writer, whatever it is I do these days. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that like when you had these question and answer sessions, if an if a witness gave you an answer that was like perfect, like you could like he, they said it and you could already like see yourself putting it into a brief and totally basically undermining their credibility and and it was everything that you needed, you didn't go back to the question. No. You leave the record alone, right? You don't give the witness an opportunity to explain to themselves. Save themselves what they said. Right, to add a caveat. So when when Swanton kind of came back, I was like, that's really nice of him because Bernie just completely shot himself in the foot. Like he just basically, he on the record admitted to tanking. Yeah. Whether or not that was his intent or not, that's what the record says. Yeah. Um, so for Tomic to go after him was so Bush League and immature, which is, you know, basically what the rap on Tomic is yeah. uh, effectively. So yeah, so this week in, in Shanghai, uh, he loses 6-4-6 love yesterday to Florian Mayer and once again you know was asked about effort in his post-match press and he said that he tried 100% in the first set but in the second set his effort was closer to 85% which again this goes back to what Ben said like I just don't think that Bernard understands what he's saying yeah there's, there's, a, or, there's, there's some wires that don't exactly connect. There. Yeah, because I because if you wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, like having read the quotes, I would just say like, oh, okay, so, you know, like he gave 100% in the first set and then the second set he got tired and could only give yeah. 85%, which it's not tanking. I started I mean, to run that, out of gas, you know. Right, I ran out of gas. I got stuck in third gear. I just mentally, I just couldn't kick it into that extra level. None of that is a, a critique of effort. You know, you're still trying as hard as you can. You're just not yielding a hundred percent result. Um, but yeah, the, the kid just—I don't know. I was telling you before, like he doesn't understand the questions that are being asked from him. He doesn't understand the—it doesn't seem like he understands the words that are coming out of his own mouth, mm-hmm. and they don't match with what he's trying to say. He's basically Nell from Jodie Foster's Nell. Yeah. Um, he just. Like, he's making noise, and he just doesn't understand, like, what those noises mean and what effect they have. I don't know. And that he does sometimes a similar thing on the court with his play. It makes him a very perplexing opponent um, because he doesn't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's doing. Yeah. It's like somebody who's playing poker and doesn't understand the rules. Like, you don't know if they're hang on to their cards. doesn't mean they have anything good. 
They might have something amazing yeah. and not realize it. You know? Anyway, it's just tough. And so, uh, Angelique Kerber actually got some sort of similar, I don't know what the term is, side eyes when she <laughs> retired um, in Beijing this week against Maria Sharapova. She was down 6-love, 3-love. And I think I have this right. Had her first medical timeout of the match at that point and had a foot injury or something and then stopped the match. Yeah. And then we got a question relating to that, which says, um, do retirements during matches get investigated by WTA? Um, I'm thinking of Kerber's abrupt stop. I hadn't seen a problem at all. I think the short answer to that is no. I think during matches you can get a warning for not getting best efforts, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't think there is a formal rule against quitting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the Tennis Integrity Unit, and, and they are charged with monitoring these sorts of things. I feel like they generally uh, focus their efforts on what's happening in the lower level. Yeah tournaments and in challengers um and things like that there is a lot more accusation of match fixing and stuff right because that's the thing doesn't have any incentive to throw a match and if you're going to throw a match you wouldn't retire midway through and you also honestly wouldn't lose zero wouldn't win zero games if you're really trying to make it look like a real effort that you're just not going to try to win right throwing a match different than tanking throwing match is sort of an art yeah, throwing a match is an art. It's it's the it's the try just enough, but learn how to lose just the right points to make it look like you know whatever you're choking, you're head casing, whatever. I mean, tanking is just more you're over it and and you want out. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, I was I was pretty I was pretty critical of of Kerber um, in my report card. I think I gave her like a D, uh, just because to me. You know, unless you, if you're down six love, three love, unless you suffer an injury that that truly is serious at that moment, like an acute injury, you stand there and you take your beating. Yeah. Um, I just think that that's that's what is the sportsman like thing to do. Yeah. Guy just um, stayed out there in the Hotman Cup court and let Bartoli finish the cried. job. Yeah. Yep. You know, Sharapova has sat there taking, getting her ass handed to her by Serena and Vika. Um, we numerous just times. Had a, a tennis channel show about this. Uh, best of five. The category was blowouts, mm. which I watched. Um, and I was very glad they actually included one, which was sort of people, one people forget about, um, which was Petrova beating yeah. Kleisters six one six love six one six love six one in twenty eleven in Australia, which is bizarre. That was the it biggest was blowout loves, upset. Yeah. Yeah, it was six love six one, and it wasn't even that close. No. And it was Kim like, Kleisters losing. Yeah. And she was defending champ. Yeah. Or not defending champ. No, she was US right. Open champ coming into US Australia. Open champ, that's right. And she wound up winning the Australian yeah. Open the next year. So Yeah. So, you know, I mean I I just think, you know, I I remember a few years ago, I think it was um I can't remember which tournament, but I'm pretty sure it was Isugiyama versus Dominika Sabolkova. Okay. And Sabolkova was down match point and retired. Yeah. Like you can't just stand there. And and no injury, like nothing had happened. She was just down match point, and she abruptly retired. And it was just like you can't stand there and just let Aisugiyama ace you to end the match. Yeah. Like this is ridiculous. And like it, you it know, speaks to why Justine Ennin got so much crap when she retired the Australian right. final in '06. Um, right. She was losing badly, six one two love, I believe. Yep. To maybe three love, two or three, to um, Amon Moresmo, and she stopped the match because of a stomach problem or something. 
and didn't let Moresmo have the sort of moment of finishing the match, which is big under any circumstances, but triply big when the person's winning their first Grand Slam title. Yep. So, yeah. So she got a lot of, um, did not pick up a lot of, you know, kudos for that, to put it lightly. Right. We got another question, which has, we're talking about the Australian Open here. So we got a question about Australian travel on our Facebook page. Courtney, do you want to go present that question to us? I would be happy to. Um, Yes. So our Facebook page, which we are trying to kind of build out because we think that it's a much easier way to kind of actually establish a community because we can all kind of talk to each other and leave messages. And, you know, because Twitter is a bit more transitory. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm not awake when like if you're not awake when I tweet, then you're probably not going to see the thing that I tweeted. Yeah. Whereas with Facebook, you know, it's all there. Um, and uh, so it's helpful. So we do we do ask you guys, if you're listening, to, to please like our Facebook page, which is uh, at www.facebook.com slash NCR podcast. So, um, yes, please, please do that. So uh, the question was from a listener, Ben Shapiro. And he asked, is the travel schedule for players that live in Australia as tough as I would think? How often do they get to go home? And basically, you know, yeah, I mean, that's the gist of the question is, is, is whether or not they get to go home very often. And I think that generally speaking, the answer is no. I, the ba- my basis for that is primarily just kind of interviews that I've, I've done with Sam Stozer. She is based out of Tampa, uh, yeah. Florida, actually. Um, and there's, and the big reason why is because of the travel. Um, and I've heard Leighton Hewitt mention this as well. Leighton Hewitt just, actually has a base in the Bahamas. Yes. But, and a lot of, all of that is because it's just too difficult to travel back to Australia when you have the way the tennis schedule works, where if you take, if you include travel days, like the most that you may have off between tournaments where you don't have to pick up a racket is like a week. Yeah. You know, like, um, and so, but then when you're, you're flying all the way to Australia, that's basically a total of like four travel days because of just the flight and then the jet lag and all that. So it makes it brutal. So most of the Aussie players do have, you know, bases that are much more centrally located, whether or not, you know, in Europe, uh, or, or the States. Um, so they, so they don't, so they don't get to go home that often. And I think that that's always been something, especially the last few years for Stozer, that's been what makes the January Aussie swing actually quite difficult for her Yeah, is because Australians don't get to see Sam like ever like you know and unless you see her on tv or you follow the sport you know as much as the rest of us do and she's playing at a lot of weird times in australia too mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah so when she gets home it's like you know she's she has all these sponsor obligations she's all of a sudden inundated with this attention that she's just not used to 11 months out of the year you know obviously the first she, she gets to go see family and, and friends and has to try and cram that into that time where she's also kind of like under the microscope and in the spotlight so you know that that can be difficult i think for a lot of different players who don't get to return home you know as often as they'd like yeah i think maybe that's even part of why Stoser is playing osaka this week it's just because it's like on a similar time zone to australia mm-hmm. and uh people can actually watch her play there and she can you know pick up the phone or normal hour and call home or something. I mean, these are things that maybe we don't all think about not being from the opposite end of the world, but, uh, 
yeah, there's a lot of issues from based on geography that come into being a tennis player for sure. Just in other terms, there are a lot of Americans do go home between the French Wimbledon, mm-hmm. um, which is made easier because they all tend to lose early at the French. <laughs> if they started winning French Open, maybe they wouldn't do that. Um, European players, it's a lot easier for, um, and that is a lot of the reason why a lot of them, you know, don't play like a full U.S. Open series or play Washington or something. They just come for the Masters so they can maximize their time at home. And it is part of why they play these post-Wimbledon clay events that a lot of people malign and say shouldn't exist. There's a reason why, you know, I don't know, Gio Simone wants to play Hamburg or something. Because even if it doesn't help him for his U.S. Open preparation, it is closer to home and a much easier trip. So I, yep. I think people realize that to a big extent, but we thought we'd answer that question because we received it. Yep. And I think Tomic is now based in Monte Carlo as well. Yeah. Or in Monaco, in Monaco. So there's another Aussie that, that isn't, uh, is no longer based at home. So I wonder if his dwelling there, cause it's a pretty small town. I wonder if his dwelling is just a locker. <laughs> well played. Yes. I was shocked. For those of you who don't know, Andy Murray is back on Twitter and his like second tweet was a picture of Bernard Tomic folding himself into a locker in the locker room. Which was like a shock because Tomic's like six five. He's a lanky guy. He's a super lanky dude, and somehow he's he's like in this locker, like not a full tall like Saved by the Bell locker, like a half, a half locker. locker. Yeah, no, it was impressive work. He does um, he expends his energy in interesting ways. That one. He 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 tries sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. He, I think he was all he was all the way into that locker. I think it was not just eighty five percent. Yeah. No, I think you could. I think you could close. You could probably lock him in there. Yeah. Maybe sometimes people wish he would. So we'll do one last question, Courtney. Yeah. Um, So this question is from Ken Wu Esquire. I presume the ESQ uh, stands for that. Um, From Twitter, it does. Uh, The question is, what about some info about our podcast hosts? You sometimes refer to your past tennis lives. What are your tennis histories? So Oh, I know. So invasive. Everyone wants to know all about us now. Um, I feel like I'm being stalked by the paparazzi in Milan. <laughs> Put your hands above the table, buddy. <laughs> okay. Um, Why don't you go first? Uh, yeah. So let's see. Um, how do I even? Where to begin? So before, yeah, I know. Where to begin? I mean, I guess you know. Obviously, currently now, um, I am a freelance tennis writer, freelance writer, um, and I primarily most of my work is is for SportsIllustrated.com for the Beyond the Baseline tennis blog. Um, but I also work for a few other outlets as well, uh, like USA Today. I've done some work for the Wimbledon website and a few other tennis magazines and things like that. But before that, um, before I was, I was hired, um, I was a blogger for my own site, which was called 40 Deuce, uh, which was a very snarky, irreverent, inappropriate discussion of tennis but was very was very fun to write um and i do miss i do miss in a lot of ways writing for it um but unfortunately some of the language and jokes that i used to make on that blog are probably inappropriate yeah Uh, i think that if you uh if you if you brought it back up some somebody might give you a a goat knuckle sandwich i think so i think so i get moose knuckled for sure so so yeah so but uh but i've no doubt that that i'll kind of 
you know, go back to that that sort of writing one day uh, once once uh, a lot of this is over. But um, but so before that, I was actually it should be so funny that you are the one to ask this, Ken Wu Esquire. But I was an attorney um, for seven years uh, doing corporate antitrust work. I'd explain it, but by now you're probably asleep. Yeah, I know I am. So yeah, I'm just gonna leave it at that. But um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun fun last four years that's for sure yeah i've started similarly on the writing side i had my own tenants blog uh called the daily forehand which is part of the sb nation network and i wrote some for when that got merged into sbnation.com and so then i started writing with the new york times contributing to them technically in august of 2011 and that's pretty much where all my stuff has landed since i think so yeah it's been fun and uh Tennis, personally, I mean, my past tennis life, I wasn't ever much of a player or a pro or anything. I played in high school and intramurals in college. I was on a on a, on a mixed team. I was just a guy and a girl was the way they had the intramurals set up in my division. Which, Hence your love for mixed. Partially, partially. Um, mm. I'm a mixed doubles, mixed doubles specialist to a degree, um, which is not a big market for pros. <laughs> we started the team my sophomore year, and my teammate, name was Jay Shree. She was really into the Maria Sharapova commercial that came out at the time, which was set to the tune of I Feel Pretty. So our <laughs> team name was I Feel Pretty. And uh, yeah, so the next name we were, our sequel team the next year was I Feel Prettier, and then it was I Feel Prettiest. So it got weirder and weirder as the, as the years so went special. on. As the years went on, and people forgot about that commercial who were in our league, and it just got awkward. But uh, yeah, so that, that's, my, that's my tennis history. And uh, I still play some, and uh, not well. I'm always amazed when I step back on court because I watch so much tennis that it, I think that it must be easy. So I step back on court and just like can't do anything that I see people do, and it reminds me how good they are. And so it keeps me grounded. Exactly. It's good. No, it does. It's uh, it is easy to kind of think that it's so mechanical to hit a forehand that hard, backhand serve, and then you step on court and after you've ripped some players performance to shreds and you're like yeah i feel bad about that now especially especially when you watch on tv it can look and this goes for everybody especially when you watch on tv it can look completely mental Mm -hmm. then you get on a court and you realize you know how physical it is and how how gifted these people are to be able to be where they are and uh yeah so that's that's us uh our bios i guess so I guess that'll end it for this episode of No Challenges Remaining. We will be coming at you next week from Europe, which will be exciting. I'm not sure where we'll be when we next record, but we'll let you know. We'll do, we'll do it on a boat. Yeah, well, maybe. We might be on a boat, Andy Samberg style. Yeah. We'll have to get T-Pain. We'll do auto-tune the entire episode. Could be good. <laughs> auto-tune, auto-tune the tennis. Yeah, could be good. Uh, they should do that. They should have like an auto-tune. You could auto-tune an azarenka Sharapova match for sure. Would you want to? No, no, you wouldn't. Hey, therein lies the rub. I always thought that Azarenka would like really annoy someone who had like perfect pitch or something. You know, mm. would, like tell what every note is because she has pretty much the same note every time. It is. It'd be There's like, a oh, piece. it's a B sharp from Azarenka again. Yep. A little flat, a little sharp. I wonder if, if like, be sharp actually. If like the most, the most, uh, like the her her best shots are hit on key. That'd be, that'd be interesting, yeah. So those of you at the Berkeley School of Music or Juilliard, feel free yeah. that are also tennis fans. Yeah, I'm sure there's that Venn diagram has to overlap somewhat. It's got to be huge, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so, you know, definitely, uh, if you can, please go to our Facebook page and like us to keep up with when new episodes are uploaded and to just kind of keep tabs on us in general. Um, and if you have a friend who's wondering why our feed is not updated on iTunes, it's because we've had a host switch for that. It's kind of complicated and techy, but basically, if you were on the Correct. old feed, you wouldn't you know, subscribe to the old one. You aren't getting our new episodes. So we'll work all that out hopefully. But. Yeah. Um if you if you want the 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 feed uh, itself is no challenges remaining .podbean.com/feed that will if you direct your you can direct your your podcast listening programs to that then you'll including be able to iTunes. download including iTunes but you have to just do it manually uh, unfortunately at the moment. So uh but we're we're sorting it all out, you know, we're doing this punk rock style you know, we don't know what we're doing. We're the garage but... band of, of, of a tennis podcast. Exactly. We, we sound like we're broadcasting from inside a toilet bowl. Yeah. So works out well. Yeah. So we will leave it at that from our toilet bowl to your ears. Have a lovely week and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.